Good afternoon. This is Dr. Daniel Guerra, and this is Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Today is the 11th day of October, 2023. This will be uh, Lecture 7 in our Biomedical Portrait, Number 4. Remember, this is all about neuropathologies, um, linked either directly or indirectly to the MHC class polypeptides known as the HLA in humans. So I want to go back and cover a little bit more about the progranulin-associated frontotemporal lobar degeneration called by short GRIN-FTLD. Remember that that particular disorder, as published in the EMBO Journal in 2022, describes an hyperactive microglia with a lysosomal dysfunction, and a particular protein called TDP43 deposition. And I told you also that the suppression of TREM2 reversed the hyperactivation of the microglia in the PGRN deficiency. And that hyperactivated microglia of this PGRN deficiency will retain neuroprotective functions. So that meant we could say lysosomal dysfunction appears to be independent of microglial activation. And I was telling you that the hyperactive microglia have a couple of phenotypes. First of all, they retain neuroprotectivity. They do have lysosomal dysfunction, but they have two other signatures. One of them we're going to talk about right here is the DAM signature, D-A-M. And here's yet another acronym. This is disease-associated microglia. And DAMs have been described in neuropathologies as such to respond to A-beta amyloid pathology. So DAMs will respond to the A-beta by aggregating amyloid plaque, which, as you know from the more recent literature, facilitates the segregation and very likely enhanced protein polymerization that actually may be anti-proteinopathic. Right? Because of the production of the plaque, you're removing the pathology right? of the A-beta protein. Normally, we talk about oligomer, oligomers of A-beta, not polymers of A-beta. Recall that. Okay, So that opens up another story. That opens up the TAR DNA binding protein 43. Now, that protein is actually more described as an RNA binding protein. And it's involved in various steps in RNA biosynthesis and processing. That's right, at the transcriptional level and at the at the pre-translational level. <clears throat> now, TAR DNA binding protein 43 preferentially binds via its two RNA recognition motifs. These are called RRM1 and 
two. And they go to, they bind to, two unique GU repeats on RNA, predominantly sequenced within the long intron and in the three-prime untranslated region of messenger RNAs, which are going to become eventually um, fully mature transcripts. So be, with, with that in mind, this protein regulates the splicing of many of the non-coding and indeed protein-coding RNAs, including some polypeptides of interest because they are involved in neuronal survival after an inflammatory response. So that means the RNA that's being bound by this T, uh, TRDNA binding protein 43 is protected by that binding during some phases of pro-inflammatory response within the neuron. Now, besides that, besides maintaining neuronal survival by maintaining RNA, uh, that means not allowing it to be degraded because of inflammatory response, some of, the, some of this um, TAR DNA binding protein 43 also is involved with mRNAs that are actually significant in neurodegeneration. So once again, you see this contrarian um, observation. In the normal aspect of protecting RNA from degradation, some of the RNAs that are protected could well turn right around and become proteins responsible for neurodegeneration, such as tau or A-beta, etc. So that means that this tar DNA binding protein, which really binds RNA, <clears throat> is also involved in maintaining mitochondrial homeostasis because tar DNA binding protein 43 also binds to, and it's binding to, mitochondrial transcripts from the mitochondrial genome actually enhancing the processing of those transcripts for translation. Okay, So it has multiple roles in the cell. Now, paper published back in 2007 in ACTA Neuropathology told us that when people studied the tar DNA back then, that is the tar, that is, we're just going to now call it TDP43. It was believed to be a disease protein for frontal temporal lobar degeneration. It was also found associated with ubiquitinylated inclusions with or without motor neuron disease. TDP43 was also associated, not necessarily in the pathology of amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, and it also forms inclusion bodies, that is the TDP43, in Lewy body disease, including Parkinson's, without or with dementia, so that's known as PDD, and also TDP43 oligomerization, 
shows up in dementia with Lewy bodies. That's DLB. And finally, also in Alzheimer's. Now, if you do back in 2007, like these researchers did, an immunohistochemical analysis of TDP43, it can be shown to be pathologically confirmed in many of these diseases at percentages in AD and PD and in PDD between 30 and down to about, oh, 1%. Okay? So it means there's some correlation there. So in DLB plus AD, it's about 31%. In straightforward Parkinson's, it's about 7%. Um, in Parkinson's with dementia, it's a little bit higher, about 19%. And in dementia with Lewy bodies, um, it's also about that level of expression. But controls exhibited no increase in TDP-43. Okay. So there are differences in the prevalence of TDP-43 lesions compared to what disease you're looking at, but none of them necessarily suggest this is a pathobiochemical event <clears throat> because you do find some of it in normal brains. So when they did a statistical analysis, they found back in 2007 a positive association between TDP43 and some of the specific pathologies according to the neuropathology of these disorders. So they think back then that TDP43 may indeed be associated with Lewy body disease in particular. And that includes the neurodegeneration of Lewy body disorders. Now, the last time I told you about microgliosis and the fact that it's usually considered to be detrimental, but often it has been discovered to be absolutely the opposite of that because microglia that are, uh, uh, that are inflamed themselves, that is the cells, the microglia are generating a pro-inflammatory response and so are going through microgliosis uh, actually can protect, neuroprotect against late onset Alzheimer's disease. So the protective microglial function becomes particularly evident when you're looking at functional coding variants of the triggering receptor expressed on myeloid cells to gene products. That's TREM2. That's right. Now, we all know that TREM2 can increase the risk for LOAD, late onset Alzheimer's, and other neurodegenerative disorders, including the frontotemporal dementia-like syndromes. So those TREM2 variants, as you know, are associated with alterations in the lysosome, but also will reduce lipid uptake and lipid ligand binding. And as I was stopping the last lecture uh, from yesterday, I also said that TREM2 uh, knockouts 
seem to affect energy metabolism, as well as chemotaxis and survival and proliferation and the phagocytic nature of microglia and macrophages. And I think I've also mentioned that TREM2 locks microglia into what is, appears to be a permanent dysfunctional state such that those microglia are unable to respond to any new pathological challenge. So I want you to remember now about these disease-associated microglia, the DAMs. We've been explaining that DAMs respond to beta amyloid pathology by aggregating into amyloid plaques. And I said that that could well be an anti-proteinopathy measure. We also have been telling you that TREM2 is a protein receptor for microglial function. So TREM2 surface levels promote signaling competency by the SYK phosphorylation. And we need to keep that in mind because that sick phosphorylation can actually be generated by a different protein pathway. So, and we'll get to that later. I don't know if it'll get to today's lecture, but we'll get to that later. Now, this tar... Uh, this TDP43, as I've been saying, is involved in transcriptional regulation. And a paper published in 2013 in Active Neuropath told me that abnormal aggregates of TDP43 are identified because of their phosphorylation. And they were also identified within ubiquitin-positive tau and alpha-synuclein negative inclusions in subjects with frontotemporal lobar degeneration, that was the FTLD, and in ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. So neurodegenerative diseases like AD and, as we've been saying, dementia with Lewy bodies, DLB, and Parkinson's, as well as hippocampal sclerosis dementia also seem to have TDP43 protein aggregate deposition. But there have been few studies that have actually tried to look at the prevalence and significance of TDP43 deposition in cases that do not have a clinico-pathological neurodegenerative disease. Basically, we're talking about people that may have Lewy body formation, A beta formation, tau formation, TDP43 formation and deposition, but are otherwise normal elderly individuals. So, the prevalence of abnormal TDB43 deposition amongst normal elderly people will range anywhere from zero 
to upwards of 30%. And the increased frequency of TDP-43 deposition with age and the absence of any association with disease, even in those people up to and including 65, might suggest that TDP-43 is certainly not a great candidate for prodromal pathobiochemical events in the classical neurodegenerative diseases. And you know that there are many pathologies with many depositions of proteins that occur in elderly individuals. We know this by autopsy. But those individuals had no clear clinical diseases, such as neurodegeneration, memory deficit, or otherwise any of the neuropsychiatric disorders that prevail and then present because of those proteinopathies. You see all these depositions, but you don't see any kind of clinical um, presentation of disease from people that have passed away and then their brains were given to uh, research and those brains were studied and found great number of aggregate path uh, proteinopathies, but because of, we had the history of these people, um, we know they had no clinical diseases. And some of them are quite elderly, 75, 85, 95, in that general range. So previous TDP-43 depositional studies um, in these autopsies are now start, were starting in 2013 to be considered incidental, meaning, yes, it's there, but can't find a good reason to link it, even correlate TDP-43 deposition to disease. Now, again, this is about 10 years ago. Uh, and I'll remind you that the principal abnormal protein aggregates found in Alzheimer's disease, um, you know, such as amyloid neuritic plaques composed of beta amyloid, as well as neurofibrillary tangles, and indeed neurites, remember those are the outgrowths, are which are, of course, composed of phosphorylated tau, are present at some degree in cognitively normal individuals. And even the distribution and densities of all of those different proteinopathies overlap in subjects with clinical pathological health. Okay, so yet you find it, you also find it in clinical pathology disease of neurodegeneration. It doesn't mean it's not there. It's what we're saying, it's both in healthy and in. Uh, people with severe cases, for example, of Alzheimer's or Lewy body disease. Now, the main aggregate protein, of course, in Parkinson's is alpha-synuclein. Alpha-synuclein itself is aggregated in some 10 to 25% of clinically healthy elderly. And that prevalence of alpha-synuclein aggregation increases with age, and with some of those people, they stay clinically healthy in terms of neuropsychiatric presentations. Now, white matter rarefaction, it's called, 
which is how it's described in radiological literature, and white matter hyperintensities, or leukoareosis, or small vessel ischemic injury, are found in older individuals with sometimes some of these proteinopathies. And there is a linkage with gait abnormalities, but no neuropsychiatric conditions. So that could be a motor neuron event, right? Of course. Additionally, there's a argyrophilic grain disease. And argyrophilic grains are present at a frequency of about 15 to 25% in the normal elderly. So what are these argyrophilic grains, these ARGs, okay? Sorry about ARG being the acronym because, of course, that's arginine. That's what I would think about when I saw that. But Okay, so ARGYR, argyrophilic grain disease, which now is called AGD, is a sporadic neurodegenerative disorder of old age. What age? Uh, over 65 in men, over 70 to 75 in women, just like AD and other uh, late-onset neuropsychiatric diseases involving neurodegeneration. So you get the presence of these argophilic grains, AGs, and these are derid dendritic-derived appendages, and they're revealed with the Golgi method together with pre-tangled neurons in association in the limbic system. And it accounts for about 5% of all dementia cases in the limbic system, which is not as common as many of the other dementias. So AGs and pre-tangled neurons contain, wait for it, hyperphosphorylated tau. They call it the 4-hour tau. It's associated with the typical 64 kilodalton and 68 kilodalton patterns, and it's accompanied by tau truncated forms that have a lower molecular mass. This is probably a result, according to this paper, via thrombin-mediated limit proteolysis. So hyperphosphorylated tau does accumulate in oligodendroglial coiled bodies and in limbic astrocytes. We've talked about this before recently, like the last three lectures. There's also this phenomenon called ballooning neurons, which occur, again, deep in the amygdala. Right? And they are nonspecific, and they accompany certain very vague abnormalities, according to clinical studies, such as, um, you know, slight memory loss or confusion upon testing. Now, there was a proposal back in 2008 for AG distribution. And it was believed that maybe it occurs in four stages and that the clinical symptoms depend upon how far along these grains develop before there is a tautopathy. Because remember, these grains are basically associated with 
hyperphosphorylated 4-hour tau. And again, you see this in Alzheimer's disease. You see this in progressive supranuclear palsy, which I mentioned, uh, and cortical basal degeneration, and of course, in the synucleinopathies. So the pathogenesis of this argophilic grain disease um, is often relate uh, is often linked to increased expression of oxidative response markers, reactive oxygen, cyclooxygenase products of fatty acids, and downstream stress kinases such as P38. Now we know those kinases and that kinase that I told you I like because of its uh, otherwise normal purpose, the glycogen synthase kinase 3 beta, both co-localize in the central nervous system with hyperphosphorylated tau deposits in neuron and in glial cells. Okay. And that indicates there could be a link with oxidative stress and tau phosphorylation. We, uh, we know that from the literature. That's definitely the case. So the hyperphosphorylated tau in turn co-localizes, uh, co excuse me, with the P62 so-called sequestasome 1 with ubiquitin. And that points to an activation of protein aggregation following protein degradation pathways. So these AGs and the tangles co-localize with mutant ubiquitin. That's known as UBB plus 1. And that results in the molecular misreading at the translational level of nascent messenger RNA. So that then links all together with a proteasomal function with impairment, that is to eliminate those proteins after they're synthesized, right? So, and that could be linked, that could be linked to the hyperphosphorylated tau. So I just wanted to bring all that together for you so you got that particular pathology because I didn't want to you know, walk away from it without at least giving you all the fundamentals of it. Because uh, there's so many of these neurodegenerative diseases, it is difficult to keep track. Even when you're studying them, it's difficult to keep track because there are so many. And they do have unique pathologies, meaning unique presentations. The pathology in terms of the dementia or the other behavioral responses and uh, neuropsychiatric presentations are much more similar than the pathobiochemical events that I'm describing to you. So that means when somebody says, oh, well, they have Alzheimer's disease because they have dementia and they're 97 years old, that unless we know that they have Alzheimer's disease pathology, which we won't know really until uh, autopsy, if indeed they are autopsied at that age after they pass, could be anyone, a number of these proteinopathies, or not even direct proteinopathies, but problems with lysosomal function, microglial function, you see, that is actually the major presentation of the pathobiochemical event leading to the disease.
So I, I emphasize this because it's really important to understand the complexity of neurodegeneration. And one of the fundamental things I, I also, if I haven't stressed it enough, I want to make sure I stress this. Notice how all these pathologies that result in neurodegeneration because of, say, proteinopathies. Now, that doesn't mean polymerization of proteins beyond oligomerization. And so it was always understood that, well, oh, you have a pro-inflammatory response and the inflammation causes neuronal degeneration. That was the, the belief, in fact, that's still one of the working hypotheses for neurodegeneration, along with reactive oxygen, of course. Um, and not just reactive oxygen species, but also eicosanoids and pro-inflammatory cytokines, the whole gambit. But what I've been trying to emphasize is that neuroprotection against CNS disease by pathogens or what is the other large thing that can occur in the CNS is one agents. Oncogenesis, tumor events, right? And so there is a spectrum of neurodegeneration to neuroproliferation. So many of these proteins, and particularly the ones on the surface of microglia and even on neurons, and many of the, even some of the aggregate proteins that are generated, like the tau, um, as long as it's not phosphorylated, or like the A-beta, as long as it doesn't oligomerize, may well have neuroprotective roles in normal aging. And that neuroprotection can prevent not only neurodegeneration, but also tumors. Okay. This is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry on the 11th of October, 2023, saying bye for now.